Have you always wanted to learn how to play the harp, but have no idea where to start? I've been wanting to put together a course that would inspire lovers of the harp just starting on their journey. The Your Harp Adventure series starts this June. I walk you through the basics of getting comfortable with your instrument, making music and reading music as well. You'll have access to a live Facebook group once a week where you can ask questions and meet up with other harp players just starting on their musical journeys. I know there's so much information out there and because of that, I want you to feel the progress that you will be making. The video lessons are no more than 10 minutes each, giving you bite-sized chunks of information that won't be overwhelming. Plus, you can rewatch any of the videos and learn in your own time. Plus, you'll have access to a community of learners from around the world cheering you on, with me included, and that includes PDFs of music and guides and templates. For more information, head on over to moonoverthetrees.com slash lessons. Welcome to Harp Song, presented by Moon Over the Trees Music and Theater Productions, bringing people together through collaboration, creativity, and community all through the arts. Thank you for joining us this week. I'm your host, Maureen Buscarino, and I hope to inspire you and to help you discover amazing music and artists from around the world. Growing up, Karen Loomis had two streams of what she wanted to do with her life. One was science and the other was music. She started college as a double major in physics and music, but later dropped the second major in music. But while she was in graduate school for astronomy, a friend loaned her the album Down to the Moon by Swiss harpist Andreas Vollenweider. The album opened a whole new world up for Karen. Then years later, a friend loaned her a lap harp And she really wanted to learn, so she discovered the Historical Harp Society of Ireland, which is run by Siobhan Armstrong, and found out that they have an annual summer school that she wanted to attend. While she was there, she kept hearing people say, you know, we wish we knew more about the surviving historical instruments. And well, the rest is history. The music we are listening to is from Siobhan Armstrong's newest album, Music, Ireland, and the 16th Century. The album was just released in May of this year, and I just want to share a little review from the Irish Times by Michael Durvin. The nail-plucked, metal-strung Irish harp displays in the hands of a player such as Armstrong all the ethereal magic that made it so celebrated in its heyday. She plays a copy of Trinity College Dublin's Brian Beru harp. And if you're at all partial to its uniquely enchanting sound or just want to sample some rarely heard music, this album is not to be missed. I have a link to the album and Siobhan's website in the show notes. So do yourselves a favor and pick up this album. It's absolutely gorgeous. 
And if you want to hear more about Javon Armstrong and her research and the Historical Harp Society of Ireland, please go to my interview with Javon uh, from earlier this year. So enjoy my conversation with Karen Loomis and the amazing stories she and others have discovered about some of the surviving ancient harps of Ireland and Scotland. Karen, thank you so, so much for for being here on Harp Song to talk to me about your fascinating career and discoveries that you make um, in, in the area of, of instruments and, and especially the early harp. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's absolutely a delight to be here talking to you. Oh, thank you. What led you to become an organologist? And maybe for our listeners, they might not even know what that is. So, Yeah, so organology is the study of musical instruments. Um, and one way that I explain it to people who aren't familiar with what it is, which is most people, is if you think about the, you know, the, the people who, for example, study Stradivarius violins to try to discover the secrets of how they were constructed. Those people are organologists. That's one of the things that organologists do is we study musical instruments to better understand them and their history and, and how they were put together and used. So, so that's what I do. And um, I came to this field uh, from a career as a scientist. And actually, going all the way back to when I was growing up, I really had two streams in my mind in terms of what I wanted to do with my life. And one was science and the other was music. In fact, the, the first project that I did having to do with a musical instrument was back when I was in high school. And um, I was taking a course called Music Study and Research. And we had to do, we each had to do an independent project. And I chose to do one on the upright piano that my family had. It was this, one of these old kind of beat up upright pianos. And I had found out from the piano tuner that it belonged to, or it had been built by um, uh, an inventor, uh, Matushik. And he had been, this was in, you know, in the late 19th century, he had been experimenting with different designs of piano action. And that piano was apparently one of his test pianos. And he had, he, it actually inside it had this sort of experimental uh, piano action that he had later dis disengaged, but just left inside it. And so it was this sort of unique, interesting thing. I thought, wow, that's really kind of cool. So I wrote a little term paper on it, and and I maybe that's I don't know if that's when I first got the bug, but I thought oh, that's really interesting, you know, to sort of discover something like that. Um, so that was always in the back of my mind, the the music, and I actually started college as a double major in physics and music. I I ended up dropping the music major because it was just it was too much to do both of those majors. But it was always there in the back of my mind as something that, you know, I, I 
thought maybe I might come back to at some point. Um, and it, a few years after I graduated, I, when I was in graduate school studying astronomy, a friend loaned me uh, an album. Uh, and it was by the um, harpist Andreas Vollenweider. And the album was Down to the Moon. This was back in the 1980s. And up to that point, I really hadn't thought, given much thought to harp music either way. Now it was just sort of there. And really the only harp music that I had been exposed to or that I was aware of up to that point was um, pedal harp, you know, orchestral music. And I listened to this album and it, you know, and I thought, wow, that's really very interesting. It's different from anything I'd heard. It was a different way to play the harp, different kind of harp music. I thought, that's really cool. And I said to myself, I wonder if there's other interesting, different harp music out there. So the next time I was in the record store, I walked past the, the pop and rock section, and I walked past the classical section, and I found myself in the what was sort of a catch-all section. It had world music, it had new age, um, it had folk, and I was looking around there, and I saw a a divider tab labeled harp. So I thought, I'll look in there. So I looked in there and I saw an album and it looked kind of interesting. And it was, the album was Journée à la Maison by Alain Stivell. And I took that home and I put it on my turntable. And in that moment, my life changed because that was like nothing I'd ever heard before. And it was, to me, the most amazing and creative harp music or music that I had come across up to that point. I thought, wow, this is this is amazing. This is really unique and different, and this is an entirely new world. And it was a number of years before I actually came to studying the harp. But that was always there in my mind. And I actually, from that moment on, I, you know, I sought out more of, of uh, Stivell's recordings and, and other harp music in that vein. And um, eventually I came to, you know, this is years later, um, uh, I was at one of those sort of life transition points that we sometimes encounter in our lives where we, we see the paths diverge. And a friend of mine showed up at my front door, unannounced, with, and she, she handed me something, and it was a lap harp. It was a Lewandowski, one of the small ones. And I said to her, what do I do with this? Because I, I didn't play the harp at that point. And, and, you know, it wasn't even something that I really talked about to people. It was just something I was kind of interested in in the back of my mind. And, you know, I said to her, what do I do with this? And she said, you'll figure it out. <laughs> and then with that, she turned around and walked away. And that was, a, that was a little over 20 years ago. And that little lap harp, I didn't know what to do with it. It <laughs> sat in the corner for a few years and then I eventually thought I picked it up and you know sort of tried to figure it out 
And one thing led to another. And with a couple beers, I um, had looked online and discovered the Historical Harp Society of Ireland and that they had this annual summer school called Skol Naglarsha in Ireland that you could go to and learn about these metal strung harps. Because that, that lap harp that was given to me, the Lewandowski, that was a, a wire strung harp. And um, I thought, oh, this is, this is wonderful. You know, I could actually learn something and, and, and um, go and meet other people uh, that play these metal strung harps, um, you know, the, the historical harps of, of Ireland. And I went there. That was in 2006. And, of course, that was a, a, the, one of the most amazing experiences of my life, going there. Uh, the, 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 just meeting the, the people there, not only the, the other students, but also all of the, the tutors there, the, the depth of knowledge um, that was there. Uh, and I was just struck by, by this whole world to explore uh, with these instruments and their music and their history. And one of the things that really stuck in my mind, though, from that experience was um, I kept hearing people say, uh, you know, tutors and, and students, gee, you know, we wish we knew more about the surviving historical instruments because there are 18 of them that survived. Um, and the the harps that the metal strung harps that people play today are are newly built we can't play the 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 historical ones because they're they're so incredibly old and fragile so if somebody wants to play the the repertory from that time period and if they want to explore the historically informed performance you know the the way that people would have played that music on their instruments in that time period um a, a, you know, probably the, the best way to do that is to get yourself a instrument that is modeled after one of the historical instruments in an informed way, because it's going to sound and behave, you hope, you know, in a way that approaches what, what it would have been like back in the day. And of course, the, the, you know, people were saying there, and, and people were playing, you know, instruments modeled after uh, some of the historical instruments, but I kept hearing uh, people there say, you know, yes, these are modeled after historical instruments, but there's so much that we don't know mm. about these instruments, like the Brian Baru harp at Trinity College, uh, the Downhill harp, or um, the Queen Mary harp at the National Museum of Scotland. The Downhill harp is at the, the Guinness Museum in Dublin. Um, those are just three, three of the famous ones. Um, and if, you know, one way to think about it is imagine if you again, I'm going to use the the, the 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 violin as an example. Imagine if you were a person from the future, you know, and you had, and there were no violins anymore except maybe a few in museums, and no one had heard what one sounded like, and uh, no one knew how to build one. And all you had, and you had to build one to play, but all you had was a photograph or two 
or you know what you could see through the glass display case. You couldn't, you know, you you maybe you had a few rough measurements of the outside, but that's you know you really didn't know how it was put together, how thick the pieces of wood were, how thick the soundboard was. You know, didn't know anything about a sound post inside or any of the details that go into making any kind of musical instrument. So imagine you had to build one with just this little bit of information and try to make it sound like the original. Well, it probably wouldn't, you know. You could make something, but without all those fine details, it's very hard to replicate how the original would have behaved or to even know how it would have sounded. So that that was you know i felt bad that you know people were struggling with this and and the the harp builders were doing the best they could they were actually doing really fantastic work they just needed more information and i and this really stayed with me because i knew from my background as a scientist i have a background in physics and astronomy that um that knowledge with some additional training could be really useful in studying these instruments that we could study the surviving harps as artifacts in this in the same way that archaeologists or art historians study old artifacts old paintings um, so that's what very quickly led me to go and get uh, formal training in organology at the university of edinburgh which is um, one of the premier places in the world for this study. So that was a little bit of a long-winded answer, no, but no. That's, that's where that's how I got to by a very long path. It, it sort of like all the pieces eventually came together and fell into place. Wow! And, and was piano your your primary instrument? No, it was just something that you know, like a lot of kids growing up. My family had a piano. I took piano lessons for a, a few years, but you know, it was wasn't something that I really played much. It was just it was something I took a few piano lessons as a kid. Uh, it's just my family had a piano, and you know, all of us kids kind of banged around on it, and it was just sitting there. So, yeah. So hmm. I really ha- wasn't a, um, much of a musical instrument player until I started playing the harp. I mean, I did, like I said, I did take some piano lessons, like a lot of people. It just didn't stick with me. Um, And I actually, um, about 10 years or so ago, I I actually took a year of harpsichord lessons, which was really a wonderful experience. Um, Not too far from me, um, there's the... Princeton Early Keyboard Center, and they actually have hi- historical instruments that you can play and wow. learn on, which is really wow. a wonderful experience. Yeah, so I actually learned to play on actual early instruments, the harpsichord, at least for a year. I wouldn't consider myself a pro- highly proficient player, but it was a uh, it was a great, great learning experience, and and also you know hit home the idea that, you know, having an instrument that it behaves in the manner of the instruments that were used to make the music originally, it does, it does make a difference. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, because when you're studying all the repertoire, 
you wouldn't know about the the resonance or the decay of the strings or um, even uh, when I was speaking to uh, Siobhan Armstrong, she was mentioning that you can look at the instruments and see where people's hands were or the wear of the instrument. So um, you can see how the placement was on the instrument as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and I don't want people to think that, you know, they have no choice, that they, that, you know, everybody has to use an historical replica or else the heart police will show up at their house <laughs> and confiscate their instrument. Um, that's, that's not, you know, that's, I don't want people to get the, the, the wrong impression. Um, uh, really what, what I'm saying is that, you know, the, there is this historical repertory, um, but to, Turn, and a lot of it is in manuscript form. And to take that manuscript, and I'm sure you and you probably discussed this with Siobhan when you interviewed her, but to take what we have in manuscript form and reconstruct that as a performance, there's a lot of thought and practical work that goes into that. Mm-hmm. And having the right tools to help you down that path uh, really makes a big difference. Uh, for you know, if you are someone who is interested in reconstructing or approaching, mm-hmm. you know, you know, we we can never know f- without a time machine exactly what the you know an, a historical performance would have been like in the day. But we can at least with you know, with knowledge and um, investigation and research, we can try to approach that and and try to reconstruct what it would have been like. Um, and that's where having instruments that um, replicate as, as best as we know with our current knowledge, the historical instruments makes a big difference. And, and, and it's amazing how little things do make a di- difference. Like as you were pointing out, Siobhan had mentioned the placement of the hands. And if you look at the um, surviving instruments, the surviving early Irish harps, uh, and, and the, the surviving um, early Scottish harps, um, you can see the, the, where the edges of the sound box are worn down, where the, the players' uh, wrists and hands and arms leaned against the sound boxes. And this is something that um, you see with other early musical instruments as well. There are little places uh, where you can see where the players hands have worn down the instrument, touched the instrument. And that, that, that tells you something about how it was played. Uh, for example, like early, some early necked string instruments like uh, lutes, for example, some of them you can actually, if you look at the fingerboard, you can actually see little um, indentations where the fingernails huh. dug into the fingerboard. Really interesting. Wow. Uh, and for these harps, for sure, you can you can see where the edges of the sound box have worn down in very specific places. So it's not like there's just wear all over the place. I mean, there is you know some degree of wear all over because they're old and they've been handled a lot. But there's very localized places on each side of the sound box where the the harper's uh, hands and wrists uh, and forearms rested. And that for sure tells us something about how they held the instrument and where they were placing their their hands. Oh. And 
one of the things I did um, very early when I was just starting my um, research work into these harps is I looked at several of the the, the historical instruments, and I also um, got talked to um, a few people. I sort of did a little survey and had people write to me and say, you know, hey, do, if you were playing a replica of you know one of these harps. Um, could you have a look at, you know, next time you're playing, take a look at where your hands and wrists are and, you know, write back to me and, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, tell me what you see. And it was really interesting uh, and illuminating because basically no one was placing their hands in the same place as in exactly the same place as the as this historical instruments. Everyone had slight, everyone had differences. Some were more different than others, you know. Some people were a little bit, you know, kind of kind of in the right general area in some ways, but maybe not in other ways. And some people were just very different. And I thought, well, that's really interesting um, because it means that whatever, and that, that included myself, by the way. Uh, it, it, and I thought that means that whatever we're doing or whatever we were doing at the time is somehow different from what people were doing historically. Hmm. And so that, you know, makes you stop and think, okay, so, you know, what does that mean? Does it, yeah, it can mean a lot of things. It could mean the harps are being held higher or lower against the body. Um, It could mean that, you know, the accompaniment is playing higher, is being played higher or lower. Uh, uh, you know, using different strings. Um, it could mean that we're playing higher or lower down on the on the uh, compass of the instrument. And one of the things I did find was that most people, most or almost everyone, I would say that I that I got information from. Again, it was a small sample, so who knows? But it seemed like pretty much everybody was playing lower down on the instrument. Then historically, it, in particular, in the treble hand, um, everyone was placing their treble hand lower for for the most part, which I thought was really interesting. So stuff like that is is cool information. I feel for for us, it's helpful. I, I'm giving a talk about that, or workshop rather, about that um, this summer for the Somerset Folk Harp Festival, where we'll explore that. Now, and I will ask people. I say, look, you know, if you play replica. Uh, early Irish harp or, you know, have a look at your instrument, even if you don't, even if you just play, a, you know, a generic metal strong harp, have a look at your instrument and see where you place, see where you typically place your, your uh, hands when you play and, you know, mark that down and um, see how it compares to the way people were playing them back in the day. Hmm. Um, I think it's really interesting. It's, it's great information for players uh, it also it's, it gives us a, a wonderful connection to the people who played historically. One of the cool things I found when I was um, researching the two harps at the National Museum of Scotland, that's the Queen Mary harp and the Lamont harp, I had the opportunity to open up the sound boxes of those two instruments oh, and wow. see inside. And that was really, that was like opening up King Tut's tomb. You know, it was great. 
uh, because there was all sorts of interesting forensic stuff inside there. Hmm. For example, these harps, and, and any, anyone who's listening who, who plays uh, one of these war-strung harps knows that when you, when you change a string, uh, the, a lot of the instruments, are the, the back is closed. So, okay, how do, you, how do you change a string? You can't take the back cover off when the harp is strung up and under tension. So what you have to do is you have to thread the string through the, one of the sound holes and, and bring it up through, and you have to you know, stick a, a, um, a piece of uh, spare wire through the string hole with a little loop on it and snag the, um, the new string and kind of pull it up through. And it's, a little, it's kind of fiddly. And anyone who plays this instrument and has had to learn how to replace a string knows the frustration of learning how to do this. And you're like fishing around for the string inside the sound box. It's like, <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, and when I opened up these harps, you, I could see right away. It, oh, I should say, I should preface this with saying, oh, we, we, we know from historical information that, that that's how these instruments were restrung historically. Okay, I think, I, I don't remember, I think Bunting mentions it at some point, I think. Um, anyway, when I looked inside these two harps, these are quite old instruments. The, the Queen Mary harp is, we now know, um, a 14th century instrument. Uh, and the Lamont harp is possibly a 15th century instrument. Uh, I looked inside these. I could, the, one of the first things I saw was the scratch marks <laughs> around the insides of the sound holes where someone <laughs> had been furiously trying to restring the, the harp. And it wasn't just like one or two scratch marks. <laughs> there were hundreds of marks because these are these instruments had been used for years and years and years you know both of those two harps were still being played in the early 18th century wow so they had centuries long working lives so so there was like you know oh you know over a century or two of people fishing <laughs> wires and now probably cursing. Oh my gosh, I can't get it. You know, you could see where they were doing. And it was so wonderful to see that because you knew it, you know, there was this wonderful connection with the people who played these instruments historically. And I thought, oh, that's really great. You know, we're, we're not the only ones who just struggle with that occasionally. Mm. Um, so th that was that was kind of a cool thing. It doesn't really change anything in the way you might play the instrument, but it just gives you this wonderful connection to the, the historical people who played these. Um, and um, one of the other things I could see in there was the, you know, when, when you um, put the strings on, the, you actually uh, use a little wooden toggle to keep the string from pulling back through the string hole. So the toggle's on the inside of the sound box and it, and it holds the string in place. And you could see these two harps don't have strings on them right now. Um, but you could see where all the toggles, all the little wooden toggles had um, oh, wow. indented into the inside of the sound box. And actually some of them were probably metal toggles because I could see like um, corrosion. Hmm. Um, it was really interesting. Yeah, and there were, 
many, 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 so many overlapping. And if you think about it, every time you change a string uh, and you know reposition the, the new string, the toggle makes a new mark inside the sound box. So each one of those marks represented somebody changing a string. Wow. And there were hundreds. That's incredible. Um, so it, it just, you know, gives you an idea of how long these instruments were used. It was, it, it was wonderful seeing that kind of stuff in, in those two instruments. It, um, it, it was a great connection. Mm. Yeah, it really felt, made me feel closer to the people yeah, who I played them Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, that, that, that just gives it such a connection to humanity and history, and it's incredible. And you did mention um, that these harps have been handled a lot. Um, so how do you... Um, preserve the harps i get the information from the harps but preserve it enough so they don't get taken out of storage or or um temperature control as often um to preserve them even more so what like the technology that you you can use to um to kind of save them for the future in a way oh that's a wonderful question so the harps that survive most of them not all of them because some of them are privately owned uh, but most of them are in museums. They're not all on display. Uh, in fact, um, most of the ones, I think you know, most are all of the ones at the National Museum of Ireland are in storage. And they're, they're, as you mentioned, they're in a climate-controlled uh, bespoke uh, collection center storage area that protects them from the elements and from the environment. Uh, but... You make a really good point about the handling. So there's one of the one of the problems or one of the issues that that arises with um, players today is that you know, as I mentioned, people are seeking out replicas or, or harps, newly built harps modeled after the, the few surviving historical instruments. Well, in order to make one of those, um, someone has to go in and take measurements and get all of the information about, you know, how the how it was built and you know if it's been modified. Um, I, and I have to say, pre- pretty much all historical musical instruments have had s- at some level repairs or you know minor changes or or many of them have been modified. So you have to also gather that information as well uh, in order to, you know, make something that, that looks, that you hope is like how this instrument was when it was new. Well, the, the problem that arises with that is in some cases, you know, uh, harp makers, you know, they they face a difficulty because they may not have the resources to travel to one of the museums and get all that information. They, they might not have the equipment or the travel resources or whatever. And even if they do, even if they are able to do that, the museums face a dilemma because a lot of musical instruments generally, and also for these harps, um, what often happens is someone will come in and they'll, they'll, you know, they'll take the harp out of storage and they get their measurements. And then a little way down the road, someone else will contact the museum and say, well, I would like to measure the same harp. And that happens very often with instruments that 
for which there's a steady stream of requests to have a replica made. Uh, for example, the Brian Brewhart Paternity College is probably, I would say that's arguably the, the most replicated historical harp in the world, or certainly one of the most replicated historical harps in the world. And I, I'm, I'm aware that they get a steady stream of requests from people hmm. to, to you know, measure that instrument so that you know they can build a copy of it. And that's a dilemma for the museums because you know every time you take one of these instruments out, uh, there's the risk of wear and tear and damage to it because they're they are artifacts. They're incredibly old. Um, so what you know? What do you do? You know, the harp the harp makers need this information to make the instruments, and yet the museums also they need to caretake the instrument. And they also part of their mission though is to make their artifacts available for study. Mm. So they can't just so they they have a dilemma because they want to be able to give people access to the artifacts at the same time caretake them. And that's where someone like me comes into play uh, because I'm not a harp maker, I'm a researcher. Um, and what I did most recently is I w went to the National Museum of Ireland to study one of their historical harps, the Hollybrook. And I did this as a, uh, I did this for the um, Historical Harp Society of Ireland because one of their aims well, their main aim is to um, help in the rediscovery of the historical Irish harp, the early Irish harp, uh, by providing resources for people, and that includes harp makers. And so we, we did a project uh, that was partially funded by the um, Arts Council of Ireland. And I went there with uh, Simon Chadwick, who um, some of your listeners may be familiar, he's, he's one of the leading um, researchers of the early Irish harp. We went it was, um, in January of 2020, so right before things shut down. So we, we just it worked out, the timing worked out really well. And um, we went in there and uh, took an enormous amount of data. And part of my uh, background as an organologist is learning how to not only handle these instruments in a way that, that respects them as artifacts, but also to get the data in a way that's non-invasive mm -hmm. to the instrument, and, and you know, or at least minimally invasive and non-destructive. Uh, so we, for this harp, I actually had to, um, it was interesting because we had to, you know, we had to bring in all our equipment, and I had to create a sort of an equipment bag that would that would fit in an overhead compartment on an airplane. And so I had to get creative with what I could bring. And and unfortunately, Simon was coming too, so he was able to bring some stuff I couldn't bring on the plane. But we we contracted with a company in Ireland that does three D scanning, or some people know it as laser scanning. So we scanned the harp. And what that gives you is an accurate uh, digital record of all of the exposed surfaces of the harp that you can then go back to 
later and take all the measurements you to that you want. You know, you can measure to your heart's content, and um, you can make cross sections and you know that are all to scale and, and get lots and lots of information. Uh, the one thing it doesn't do is it, it's not a CT scan, so it won't show you, it, you know, the inside of the wood. It can't see through the instrument, but it does give you all the surfaces, which is which is a really helpful, and that's a lot of really useful information for, for a builder. Hmm. Uh, so we did that, and we did a, an exhaustive uh, photographic survey and did some microscopy, and, and uh, we brought in uh, an endoscope, and we, we put that inside the sound box. So we did, you know, everything we could do hmm. uh, with with the equipment to hand. Uh, one thing we, we didn't do, which would would be nice to do in the future is identifying the wood species and that's you know mm. invasive um, and we would need to first of all get permission from the museum because it is their artifact you actually have to take samples in order to do an identification uh, so we would have to obtain permission for that and you have to have someone uh, either a botanist or you know a wood a wood uh, scientist take the samples because they have to be done in a particular way um, to get the ID. But that would be nice to do down the road because we don't know the identification. Right. And then if there's a species... We can make some educated guesses, but it would be nice to know. Sure. And then some some of the species of, of wood might not even exist anymore or be harder well, to come by. It, 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 or they might be different from what people, you know, use today. Um but yeah, the the we know from historical information generally about these harps, and also now from research that's been done uh, over the years with the ones that survived, that um, many of them were made out of willow, uh, or at least had willow sound boxes, hmm. um, and for sure the 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 wood that's used to make the instrument makes a difference in the sound of the instrument. It has, has a big effect on the way it sounds. And also on the ergonomics, if you, you can imagine if you use a really heavy, dense wood, your harp's going to be a lot heavier. <laughs> it's harder to hold. Um, but, but yeah, so the, the woods that are used are, are really important to the, the maker, you know, the harp makers. That's one of the first things I want to know is, okay, what wood should I be using for this? Mm. So it's something, we know the woods that were used for a number of these old harps. Um, this is one of the ones that hasn't been done yet. So that's something from, for the future. Um, the most exciting part of the project, though, for that harp was the decorative work. Mm. Um because and and in fact, this is one of the things I remember seeing this harp the first time that I went to Ireland to for the um, Skolnaglarshuk uh, summer school that the Historical Harp Society of Ireland does each summer. Um, part of that is, is a field trip to dublin to see the several of the old harps and we go to the national museum of ireland and the the harp society had normally each year arranges to for for the group to go in and see the harps in storage because they're not normally on display and i remember um seeing the hollybrook harp and and 
being told by by Simon Chadwick, who was there with Siobhan Armstrong leading the tour, and and them saying that you know this harp used to be or was supposedly um, elaborately decorated, uh, according to Robert Bruce Armstrong, who wrote um, sort of the 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 main book on on these these harps um, back in 1904, um, he he had seen this harp and described these uh, you know decorations of, of exotic plants and flowers and people done in gold with black outline. He he gives a really long detailed explanation uh, detailed description mm. of this decoration, and you can't see any of that on this. I mean, the, the harp today, it mm. just, it's plain brown. It just, you know, it's just a plain dull brown color. Um, and there's no hint of that. It, unless you look under really good lighting, you can see little tantalizing hints here and there of little, you can't make it out, right? You know, if you, it's like, oh, there might have been something. You could tell there must have been something there at some point, but you can't see it anymore. Mm. And I remember people saying, Oh, it's too bad. We can't see what Armstrong describes. I guess we'll never know kind of thing. It was like everybody kind of was like, oh, I guess we'll never know. And it was funny because that that whole week there at the summer school, I kept hearing people say things like, oh, you know, it'd be nice to know like how these harps were constructed and how the joints were put together. But Oh, I guess we'll never know. People kept saying, "Oh, I guess we'll never know," and I kept hearing that, and it really stuck in my head. You know, it's like echoing in my head. Oh, I guess we'll never know. I thought, mm, I think you know, I think we need to go figure this out. Yeah. And so I that when I saw the Holly broke that first time, I thought there has to be a way. And from my background um, as a scientist, uh, you know, and as an as an astronomer. One of the things that we do uh, is look at objects in different wavelengths of light. And I was aware that um, art historians and art conservators use this uh, to look at paintings. Uh, for example, you know, you can look at paintings in infrared light or ultraviolet light. In infrared light, you can see through some of the varnishes, mm. and sometimes you can see details that are, you know, hidden by varnish that's turned dark. And ultraviolet light, you can, um, some pigments will, you know, fluoresce in ultraviolet light and show up. And that's how art historians can sometimes see where there's overpainting and, and things like that. I thought, well, I wonder if these techniques might be able to be applied to looking at this harp. Mm. And I kept that in the back of my mind for, well, I guess it's been like 50, almost 15 years. Um, and I thought, oh, if we ever, if ever the chance to study this harp comes up, I'm going to see if we can, you know, see, see if there's decoration there. And so... When um, the Historical Harp Society of Ireland approached me uh, a couple of years ago and said, you know, would you like to write a, a little proposal uh, to study one of the harps at the National Museum of Ireland? We're, we're going to put in a grant application and we would be able to you know, fund that. And I, and I, you know, I had to decide which one. <laughs> and it's, it was hard. You know, it is, they're all interesting. 
each one has a unique history and each one is is unique in its in its construction you know they're they're not all identical mm. um so they're all it's like a treasure hunt to me you know <laughs> they're all interesting there's always something to discover uh, maybe that's maybe i feel that way because of my background in physics and astronomy because astronomy is all about discovery oh, it's yeah. about you know, observing something to discover, mm. you know, whether it's a new planet or a new supernova or whatever. Um, it's all about discovery, you know, going to Mars when I'm mm-hmm. in a rover and seeing what's on the other side of that crater. Um, I thought, oh, you know, this is, this is really cool. They're all really cool because there's something you can discover on every single one of them, mm. guaranteed. But I decided to do the Hollybrook partly because it's of its design um but also because i was really the decorative work mystery really kind of you know caught my eye so when we went and to the museum i got permission to photograph it under ultraviolet light Uh, we did also do a little bit of infrared photography but um i we held off on that because in order to do infrared photography you have to have a dedicated camera that has had the inter- infrared blocking filter removed. And this is something I was aware of, but I really didn't want to um, sacrifice one of my digital cameras mm. to do that. And I actually had experimented you know, to see, you know, can we get by without doing that? And I, I, beforehand, I experimented with you know, some at home with like some paintings and that kind of stuff. I thought, oh, yeah, we might be able to just do it with long exposures. Mm. But when we got to the museum and we tried it, they, the exposures were really long, and it, the results were kind of very dim and fuzzy, and I thought, no, okay. It'll have to be next time, and I'm just going to have to sacrifice one of my cameras or, you know, just get an infrared camera. Mm. Uh, but we did the UV photography, and basically what we did was uh, we we – Brought a, actually, Simon brought a black light. You know, it's one of these, you can buy them online. It's just, you know, just a, nothing special, just a black light, which is near UV. And uh, we used pr- protective goggles for our eyes, just in case anybody's wondering. You do need to wear your protective gear. And um, just a standard digital camera uh, with a, actually, what this might be worth mentioning. I had to, one of the things I did was um, when you do ultraviolet light photography, you actually have to put a UV blocking filter on the camera, which Mm. sounds counterintuitive. You're actually blocking the ultraviolet light from getting into the camera. And the reason you do that is because what you're taking a picture of is not the ultraviolet light. You're taking a picture of the things that glow Mm. under ultraviolet light. And that glow is actually invisible light which is why we can see it. Um, so anyway, we, we took photographs. And the very first photograph, I can remember it because it was, the, it was almost the end of the day. And we were about to start packing up for the day. We were there for a week. And I think this was like the second day. And we had a little bit of time left. And we looked at each other and said, you know, should we, should we just try doing, you know, a, you know take one ultraviolet image just you know just see you know just try we've got a few we've got a few minutes at at the end of the day 
Uh, so we set it up and <laughs> took the first picture. And as soon as I looked at the picture, I mean, you, you can sort of see with your naked eye uh, under the light, but you do need to expose with the camera to really, to really see what's going on. Uh, they weren't long, long exposures, but you know, more than you can just see with your naked eye. Um, and as soon as I looked at the, in the viewfinder and saw what had come up on the camera, I, I, I think I like kind of squealed and jumped up <laughs> and down a little bit. Uh, and, and poor Simon is standing there. He's going, what, what? And I said, let's take another one longer. I'll show you in a minute. And he's like, what? <laughs> And, um, yeah, we, we were both like, oh, my goodness, because what the ultraviolet light did was it revealed this hidden decorative work. Wow. And the first picture we took was this, this elaborate design of flowers and leaves that on the side of the sound box wow. is completely invisible in visible light. And um, so we went. You know, the following day, I was like, oh, wow, this is great. Uh, so um, the following day, we went back and we and we photographed the, the rest of the harp and, and under the ultraviolet light, and we found a whole bunch more decorative work. Wow. Some of it, unfortunately, didn't survive just because the, 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 um, the surface, on, for example, on the soundboard is really chipped and worn off, and that's just, it's just, like, basically down to bare wood in places. Um, so it just didn't survive, but we, we were able to record a lot of what was, what was there historically. And, and first of all, confirmed what Armstrong said, because, you know, who knows, maybe Armstrong was making it up, but he wasn't <laughs> making it up. It really was there. Um, what we saw is, was just sort of like the silhouette of, of the patterns. And the reason it showed up that way is because, uh, I believe this harp was, Japaned, and um, Japaning is, um, we've all seen Japaned items, maybe even if you don't realize that that's what it is, but if you, it's um, a method of finishing an object, often it's like a um, furniture or something like that, that is a copy of or uh, or modeled after um, East Asian finishing. Uh, East Asian lacquer work. So this was really popular historically, and it's still kind of popular today. So it has a very glossy surface and decorative motifs scattered about off you know, of exotic things like um, exotic birds and, and scenery, um, often you know inspired by East Asian designs. Uh, usually in like a, a, a shiny pigment, like a gold or, or silver pigment. Really popular in Europe starting in the 17th century and it peaked in popularity in the 18th century. And the Hollybrook is, we believe, an 18th century harp. So it would have been really popular at the time. And we know from at least one historical account that, that, that um, Irish harps were almost certainly, at least, you know, probably very highly likely that, that some of them were being Japaned, you know, hmm. decorated this way. Um, so from Armstrong, like in the, in 1900 or 1904, he saw it in full color, but then what happened to the harp? I, you know what, I, I wonder if he's, if how much he was able to see, because he, 
uh, he does say in his description that it looked to him like the uh, the decorations had originally been you know pigmented in gold, but that it had worn off. Mm. So I'm guessing he maybe he was it that it was already like disappearing by the time he looked at the harp, but that he but enough of it was there that he was able to make it out. Mm. Okay. And I think what has happened is. You know, over the years, the harp has been varnished and revarnished, and 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 that's turned dark, mm. and so you can't really see what's underneath it. But even before then, that as Armstrong points out, that the these were what he says is they were originally done in in uh, a gold color, and that he mentions that it looked like that had worn off. Um, so I think that the the decoration the pigmenting had just wore off over time because it's an old harp. Um, and, and then it, of course, then it just, the harp just got revarnished and, you know, several times. And so you couldn't even see, you know, what had been there. I think it just got a combination of wear and being covered over. Um, the reason we were able to see what we could see under the black light is because, uh, Part of the technique of japanning uh, is you build up the, the designs, you apply the designs using a mixture that includes gum arabic. And gum arabic, it turns out, is um, absorbs ultraviolet light. Hmm. So when you shine an ultraviolet light on the design, it shows up as black against a, a lighter background because the background was glowing a little bit. Hmm. So that's why we were able to see it. Wow. What a great find. It's amazing. <laughs> it was, yeah, like I said, all these harps, there's always something to discover, always something to discover. Mm. And that's uh, that's what makes it so exciting. And not only that, is it, I mean, it's exciting and fun from just a, you know, from a research standpoint because you're discovering something new. But we're doing this to help people. You know, I, I mean, the, the whole point behind this wasn't, it wasn't just to see what we could discover. It was to try to find a solution to the, the dilemma of the harp makers and the museums. And so what we did with this project is um, after all the, you know, all the processing of all of the information, um, we produced a database of resources that is publicly available and it's on the historical harp society of ireland website so people can go there and they can on the on the home page they can see a link to the hollybrook project mm. and they can download all well first of all all of the you know raw data all of all of the photographs and the the um 3d scans wow uh, that they could use themselves, and there is also um, free software uh, available that people can, you know, use to open the scans and take measurements. Um, and I, um, I did write-ups on, you know, explaining what all the data is and you know how we took it and that sort of thing. And also, um, there's a curated set of processed images from the photo survey, and I did. Um, cross sections and orthographic views of the harp from the, the 3d scan data uh, uh that are you know to scale that you know if if you don't feel 
you know, like you, if you're a heart maker and you don't feel like you're up to uh, getting into the actual 3D scan and, you know, extracting that information, I've got, a, you know, a full set of um, diagrams that people can just download and use if they want to get the, need the information to, to um, build a, a harp modeled after the Hollybrook harp. Wow. Um, um, so, yeah, so there's a, there's a load of information there. I probably should have printed out a list of it, but if you go online to the Historical Harp Society of Ireland website, you can see all the resources that are there. There are write-ups included on the history of the harp, the, the stringing, uh, Simon Chadwick did an excellent job uh, analyzing the, the the stringing the the you know the string lengths that um, are uh, on that instrument right now and came up with a this, um, a plausible uh, historic you know a historically plausible stringing uh, schedule for that instrument. Uh, there's a write up on the construction on on the decorative work on hmm. the tuning pins. Um, you know, everything that we think of. Wow. Um, so, yeah, so, so it's enormous. There's enormous resource, as I said, it's publicly available. And the idea is that anybody who wants to can download all this information and it will, you know, they can use that rather than having to go to the museum and take the harp out. Mm. And that this will, and this is actually, in in a way, more information than they would have been able to get. Absolutely, if, they had, if they'd gone to the museum themselves. And this helps. I, I like to think this helps everybody. Mm. Uh, it helps the museums, uh, or helps helps the the, the the museum in this case um, because it helps them conserve their artifact while at the same time, you know, making that information available to people. And it helps the harp makers because uh, it gives them a free resource of information that they can then use to make their instruments. Mm -hmm. And it helps people who are, you know, want to play these instruments because they can then have one made. You know, one of the, there, I know there are lots of people who are interested in the early Irish harp. And the first question is, okay, well, how do I get harp right you know where where do i go to get one um you know you have to you know find a builder and and the builder might say well what do you want me to make you know and then you have to have the information so i'm hoping this will also help people who are interested in this instrument um the the hollybrook is um as i said it's an 18th century we believe it's an 18th century instrument and um there are two Base, two general kinds of early Irish harp. There's the earlier, uh, the earlier low-headed harps and the later high-headed harps. And the low-headed harps are called that because they they have shorter, uh, proportionately shorter bass strings, and and a um, and a consequently a shorter four pillar. So the the um, end of the neck is is you know kind of low um, compared to other harps, and they have the very familiar iconic shape that we usually associate with Irish harps. 
So, for example, on the um, Irish Euro coin, that's the Brian Brew Harp. So Brian Brew Harp is probably the most famous example of mm. a low-headed early Irish harp. Sometime in the mid to late 17th century, the uh, Irish harps with longer bass strings and a, and a longer, uh, somewhat straighter four-pillar started to be made. And by the 18th century, um, we believe most harpers were playing these later style instruments that we call high-headed because longer longer bass strings and taller four-pillar, and so the, the, the bass end of the neck kind of swoops up. Mm. Um, and the Hollybrook is an example of one of these later style early Irish harps, uh, the high-headed form. And this is the form of the instrument that um, most of the harpers were playing when Edward Bunting was out collecting the, the harp music from the Irish harpers. And as, as many harpists today are, will be aware, if you're interested in, in the Irish harp music, Edward Bunting um, is a really important name. Mm. Uh, he um, was um, brought in in the late 18th century to um, write down the music that was being played by the what turned out to be basically the last generation of historical Irish harpers in the, at the Belfast um, meeting of Irish harpers. And he, even though he wasn't a harp player himself, uh, he was a highly gifted uh, musician. He was an organist. And he was able to, by ear, you know, we did, of course, he didn't have a tape recorder back then, right? You right. know, he had no way of recording it mechanically. So he had to listen and watch them play and write it all down hmm. at speed while they were playing, which is really amazing. You know, yeah. Think about it. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, but he was so taken by this that he made this his life's work. And he spent the next, you know, 40 years um, Going around and and you know collecting music from from the last generation of Irish harpers, mm. um, and um, he had you know collected all these these manuscript notes of his. Uh, so many of the harpers uh, were you know people ask well did the harpers write down their own music? Well they didn't, and there's a couple of reasons why, um, or the, I should say they didn't generally. Uh, there there were uh, there are some, uh, for example, 17th century uh, uh, Irish harper composers, and their, and their music does survive. Uh, Cormac McDermott, for example. Um, but um, in general, they didn't write down their music. And first of all, it was an oral tradition, so it wouldn't have occurred to them to notate the music. And secondly, many of them were blind, um, uh, so there was, you know, they wouldn't have been able to notate their music. They had to know it by ear. Um, but Bunting, you know, he, he recorded it by writing it down in the field. Um, and he published three volumes of Irish harp music. Um, however, and, in, uh, you know, we have to put ourselves in Bunting's shoes for a minute here. Because at the time, uh, yes, he was preserving this music, but he was also, remember, Bunting was a, was a, a keyboardist. Mm. 
he was also uh, wanted to make it accessible for people who, for you know, a large group of people. And at that time, one of the most popular instruments was the square piano or the pianoforte. And uh, it was becoming, you know, a really popular parlor instrument. A lot of people had these little square pianos in their houses, and not very many people were playing early Irish harp. Uh, so he, um, in his published volumes, he arranged the music to be played on piano. Hmm. And in that process, he, you know, he changed by arranging. I mean, he changed notes, you know, to make it so that it would sound good on piano. So it's not what is in the published volumes is not exactly what the harpers played. Mm. It's which is you know fine if you just want to play tunes on the piano, but if you are in the 21st century and you're trying to understand well what did they actually play so that I can reconstruct that on my harp, it's not as useful. And we're really fortunate that there was this serendipitous meeting in the early 20th century of Charlotte Milligan Fox and a proprietor at a, a harp warehouse. And she, now Charlotte Milligan Fox was herself um, a collector of music and she, I mean, she was a really interesting person. She was a composer, she was a really gifted musician and a collector of traditional Irish music. And she was in England at the time, and uh, a friend of hers asked her to if she could help pick out a harp for her daughter, because her friend said, well, you're Irish, you must know something about harps. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so she went to this, this harp store, this harp warehouse, and she's looking around, and she's getting, and of course, at that time, it was, you know, the harps that would have been there, they would have been pedal harps, okay? Um, and she's getting ready to leave, and she just offhand decides to ask the proprietor, so do any, you know, old Irish harpers come in here to buy strings or whatever? And he kind of looks at her like, yeah, right, lady. <laughs> uh, and and says something dismissive like, you know, there haven't been any Irish harpers for, like, two centuries, or I don't remember exactly what the words are, um, but he's like, no. And and she's just about to leave, and he says, well, hang on a minute. There was a gentleman in here a couple of weeks ago who, who was buying a harp and, and said that his grandfather hmm. saved the Irish harp music. She was like, oh, you know? <laughs> And he's and he says, well, you know, let me look like he gives her his contact information and she looks him up. And it turns out to be um the grandson of Edward Bunting, wow. Lewis McCrory. And she goes to his house and at his house he has Edward Bunting's original manuscript notes from all of that field work. And that, you know, that must have been, you can imagine the treasure trove. Mm -hmm. If that hadn't happened, if she hadn't gone into that particular harp store and spoken to that proprietor, 
that would have they would have never she would have never met Bunting's grandson you know wow she, they made a that might have that meeting might have never taken place and so yay you know so that was a wonderful thing that happened and of course she knew exactly what to do with that information and how important it was mm. and um it a wonderful book uh that your listeners might want to read if they haven't is uh she wrote a book about this experience and also about the Irish Harpers hmm. and about bunting and um it's called Annals of the Irish Harpers and it's an absolutely fascinating fascinating book to read because it's not not only is it it's not just you know about the harps but it's about the people and um I wish somebody would make a movie about this book Sounds, it's really yeah. um, oh my gosh it's amazing because what was all of what was going on at the time that Bunting was um, uh, meeting with the Harpers, there were lots. Of, there was a lot of political stuff going on. Uh, it was a very tumultuous time, and and there were all these these um, vignettes about the the Harpers themselves. Uh, Arthur O'Neill's memoirs are are in, in there. Um, yeah, so that's a really great book. Uh, if people want to, you know, hmm. learn more about what the deal is with these harps and the harpers and the people of the time and, and you know, bunting, I would de- highly recommend it. Hmm. Charlotte Milligan Fox, Annals of the Irish Harpers. Yeah, that would make an amazing movie. I was thinking oh that gosh. as you were saying yeah. it. I'm like, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and and the bunting um, manuscripts are uh, they're in Belfast now, aren't they? That's right. Yes. Yeah. So the manuscripts it, it are at Queen's University Belfast uh, in in their special collections. And it turns out that um, there was there there was a, the uh, the trove of manuscripts uh, uh, bunting's grandson, and I think there was another uh, family member, um, I think a granddaughter that also had some of his manuscripts and so they're they're all there at Belfast now and it's something like over 4000 manuscript pages wow. of notated music and uh song texts and information so it's a it's an, an enormous amount mm-hmm. of really useful material and um so there's all this resource there for people who really want to, you know, dive deep into the repertory. That's, uh, you know, cause sometimes I hear people say, Oh, well, is there any music for, you know, these instruments? <laughs> yeah, there is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, and so O'Carolyn was around this, the, he would have played one of the high, um, the high headed harps as well. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, uh, Carolyn was in the early 18th century. She so was an early 18th century uh, Irish harper, uh, late 17th, early 18th century. And um, the one of the harps at the National Museum of Ireland was for for years um, uh, referred to as the Carolyn harp. Um, and and then recently there was some you know uh, you know 
you don't know people like you can imagine a lot of people say oh yeah well carolyn he's you know this was his heart you know you, you don't know for sure because it's so tempting for somebody to say oh yeah this harp you know was played by carolyn because he's so famous you mm. know people might just say that you know even though it's not true um and um simon chadwick um uh, recently did uh, a really uh, deep study of this harp at the National Museum of Ireland and did some very thorough research into the provenance hmm. of this instrument. And it looks like from, and I, you'd, I, you know, you'd have to ask him, um, uh, but it looks like from uh, the results of his work that uh, this actually may have been Carolyn's harp. Wow. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, yeah. So, it, yeah, it looks like that, that that's certainly what the, what the, his investigation of the provenance points to this actually being Carolyn's harp, oh. which is really exciting uh, yes. to the, the, you know, that this could have been the harp that was actually played by Carolyn. Yeah. Um, especially since it was uh, just... Yeah. He did a fantastic job uh, with that research and he did that with the harp builder, Pedro Ferreira and um, did an exhaustive study of that instrument and, and also they, they scanned it and um, built a beautiful uh, replica of it, um, this, you know, a working replica based on exhaustive study, mm. uh, which is fantastic to be able to, you know, have a playable instrument that's modeled after, you know, a, um, a harp from that time period mm. that, you know, Carolyn played, and it's really exciting. Yeah. Um, is, is the replica in the museum as well, or is? Uh, no, it's it. That was something that he did as a as a private project. So that's that's his. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you can Simon has published his um, his results. He's he's uh, published a paper in the Galpin Society Journal that uh, really gives all of the uh, information about how they did their work and what their results were and the results of the provenance study and also studying how the harp was built, you know, just as a, as a musical instrument. Um, so uh, I encourage people who are interested in that instrument to contact Simon and uh, see if they can get an off-print of that article hmm. um, because there's a lot, it's loaded with really useful information. They did a fantastic job. And it just goes to show you that each one of these instruments has a story to tell. Absolutely. And all of the stories are interesting. You know, there's always something cool to discover on every single one of these instruments. Oh, yeah. When I, when I was studying the Laumont harp, um, we we had CT scanned that and the Queen Mary, which mm. in itself was really cool. That was the first time that had been done. This was 10 years ago. Um, it was the first time that had been done 11 years ago uh, for any of these old harps and um we were able to see you know through the wood and a ct scan is basically a three-dimensional x-ray so you can see everything inside and from all sides Mm -hmm. and you could see like where all the repairs were you know where somebody had put a spike inside and all that kind of stuff um that was you know just a amazing uh experience and really eye-opening to see that for the you know for the first time um and but one of the things um 
afterwards was, you know, when we uh, opened up the, the sound box of the Lama harp, we actually were originally not going to open up either of those harps, mm-hmm. the Lama and the Queen Mary, because they're old, fragile artifacts. And I discussed this with the head of conservation, and they thought, you know, that's too risky. Um, after we did the CT scan, the, the back cover of the Lama harp was a little bit loose. They said, well, we're going to have to fix that. We have to do some conservation. So they said, they called me up and said, you know, do you want to come over? Because we're going to take the back cover off. And I said, I'll be on the next next bus. So I'm coming right over. <laughs> um, and um, it was, I, I remember that day so well because they had the harp sitting um, out in, in an office in the museum. And they take the back cover off. And I'm looking. And the first thing I see is there's a document. Oh, wow. Inside the sound box that nobody knew was there. Wow. Because the sound box had been closed up. And it was a vellum document and it had writing on it. And I thought, oh my gosh. <laughs> what a find. Oh it's my like God. opening up a treasure chest. Like, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was so exciting that <laughs> all of a sudden, and what was really cool is all of a sudden, and I, I kind of went, wow, it has writing on it. And all of a sudden, Within minutes, people started appearing from different places. This is in this is at, this was at the National Museum, but it was not in the public part of the museum. This was in where the offices are. Mm. So this is where all the people who work at the museum were, and people started appearing and peering around the doorway and saying, "Ooh!" Yeah, and all of a sudden, <laughs> the the keeper that um, David Caldwell, who was then the 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 keeper of that division of the museum. He showed up, and there were, I actually have a picture of him and, and another person kind of peering and saying, ooh, you know. <laughs> um, so that was great. Uh, that was an, an, a very cool discovery, and uh, it turned out um, to be the, the backside. What was in, it was pasted inside as a repair, hmm. as a patch, okay? Someone was, and this is actually something that's done was done with musical instruments um, in the past, often... Uh, pieces of um, vellum were used to patch insides of musical, other, you know, not just harps, other musical instruments. It's, it's a nice, flexible, strong patch if you need to patch a crack. Um, so this was used to, to patch a crack, and uh, it turned out to be a document that from the um, early 17th century, uh, and I was very fortunate to, you know, that Keith Sanger who is another researcher of these harps, who specializes in the ones in Scotland, who is also an expert at documents. And he, he did a tremendous job kind of figuring out from the partial bit of writing on there what this was mm. and the time period that it was from. And it looks like it was a tack or like, like a, a, a lease. It's a, um, uh, it was written in Scots. Uh, and it, I think it was a, like a lease for some land or something like that. It was hard to tell because we only had the one side of it that was like the outside that had you know a little bit of writing on it. Uh, but from the uh, early 17th century and name, you know, some partial names on there, or some names on there that related to people, people associated with the family that had the harp wow. at that time. 
So that was very cool. That's uh, incredible. Along with all the other cool stuff that was in there, I mean, I found a wire fragment stuck in one of the string holes. Wow. Um, which we were then able to analyze and was able to use that to kind of re- reconstruct the string. So Amazing. I don't know how interesting all this stuff is to other no. people, but it was really interesting to me. That's incredible. That's 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 like I, I feel like I should apologize for going on. I'm I worry that people's eyes are going to be glazing over, but no, it was really it was a treasure chest. The whole thing, and then oh gosh, yeah. So so just when I thought that that harp had given up all of its secrets, um, two years later, I had the I had the harp back in the lab. And um, it was opened up again because we were taking wood sample wood samples for to identify the woods, um, and um, I was taking that opportunity to do some photography of the inside of the sound box of the tool marks and also those toggle marks. So I had placed the light at a raking angle so that I could see the shadows, and I remember it was almost lunchtime, and I thought, well. Well, I'll take a few, you know, it's funny these things happen right right at break time, right? Uh, And I thought, well, I'll take a few more photos before breaking for lunch. And um, it was one of those situations that, you know, when you're looking at something and all of a sudden a pattern pops out at you that you didn't see before. And I was looking at this harp. I had the camera set up on the tripod and the light set up. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at, because, you you know, when you have the light at an angle, little indentations make bigger shadows. And I saw AD 1451. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I went, oh. <laughs> that had been, you know, like inscribed in the wood, in the sound box. Mm. And I, it just popped out at me. I, wow. All of a sudden, I could see it in that light. And I went, and I got the head of conservation. And I said to her, I said, I didn't say anything. I said, I want you to look in there and please tell me what you see. And she said, that says AD 1451. <laughs> I said, thank you. <laughs> um, and so we don't know for certain if that date was put in there in 1451 mm. or if somebody much later put that in there to make it look like it was old, you know. Or for whatever reason, right? Uh, you don't know, um, but I, I, I suspect it might actually be contemporary to that date um, because th- there, there are some forensic reasons. I, I don't want to bore people too much with the details, but um, the the placement of the the inscribed date is there's some glue on top of part of it that sort of ran into the inscription that is the glue that was used to put that patch on the Mm. piece of vellum that we know uh, from further research was almost certainly put in there in the early 17th century. And so I have reason to believe because of that, that the date predates Mm. that 17th century repair because the glue was just sort of oozed into it. Um, so, which which eliminates all the later stuff. For example, that harp was auctioned uh, in the beginning of the 20th century. That's when the museum purchased it. Mm-hmm. So that eliminates somebody like in the 19th century or later saying, oh, we'll just put this date in here and that way people will think it's really old and it'll be worth more money. 
you know, it, it predates that. Right. Um, and the, that harp and the Queen Mary were in the same family, passed down through generations from since, you know, well, we don't know because, you know, we don't know how old they are. Mm. But supposedly, according to the family, the Lamont harp was acquired in the um, middle of the 15th century with for as a part of a marriage, hmm. uh, with the marriage of uh, someone from the Lamont family uh, into the what eventually was the Robertson family of Mood. Uh, so that actually does kind of jive with that date. Um, and the, the Queen Mary harp was supposedly acquired um, as a gift from Mary Queen of Scots during a hunting expedition hmm. in, the, in the late 16th century. We ha- I have to say though, uh, we have no corroborating evidence to say that that gift, that gifting ever took place. Huh. That's only according to the family, you know, history. Um, there's no, there's no independent evidence that says Mary Queen of Scots actually gave that harp to the Robertson family. But huh. that's why that harp is called the Queen Mary harp. Um, but yeah, so yeah, the the Lamont harp. Um, I, I, that date certainly is consistent with the family history. It would be nice to have that harp um, radiocarbon dated to, you know, to find out mm. if that's, you know, for sure. Uh, but, but, yeah, I think that there's a pretty good chance that that, that date might actually be genuine. Wow. Um, You're a it really, it really <laughs> helps to know how old these instruments are. When I started uh learning about these harps and um that was one of the big question marks i mean there were all these big i I tell you this is why it was so tantalizing for me as a researcher because there were all these big questions like not only how are they made but um how old are Mm. they uh you know when i got into this back in 2006 um no one knew for certain how old any of the really old ones were. We, I mean, there's a, there's a bunch from the 18th century that survive. And it's pretty clear that they're from the 18th century. And there are a few that have dates inscribed on them, like the downhill harp. Uh, that's an early 18th century harp. And um, the, the cloin uh, fragments, that are, that's a 17th century instrument. That has a date inscribed on it. I think the Bunworth has a date on it. That's an 18th century harp. But the the really oldest ones, like the Brian Baru harp, uh, the Queen Mary harp, and the Lamont harp, no one knew really how old they were. If you go to the museum and you look at the little card next to the display, uh, it'll say, you know, circa 14th, 15th century or something like that, or circa 15th century. But the... the which, you know, it's an educated guess based on historical information and, you know, decorative work and that kind of stuff. It's an educated guess. And there, the thing about educated guesses there's, is that there's always going to be somebody in the wings saying, oh, but you don't really know, do you, right? <laughs> You're just guessing. Maybe it was made hundreds of years later and just made to look old, you know, kind of thing. Hmm. Uh or, and also, for people who are studying the repertory, if you've got a replica, for example, of the Brian Brew harp or the Queen Mary harp, 
what century music should you be studying? Hmm. What if you don't know what century that instrument is from? Well, how can you even know that? And you know, if you're saying to yourself, "Well, okay, I had this replica built so that I can use it to, you know, understand the music, and then it's going to help me, uh, you know, with my playings because I'm I've got." you know, the instrument that's modeled after the historical instrument, and that will help inform my playing. Okay, well, that's great, but you don't know what century that instrument's from. Mm. So how is that helping your playing? You don't, you know, how do you know what music you want to be studying? Right. Uh, so this was a problem. <laughs> um, you don't really, if you're not sure what century that instrument's from. So um, one of the... Th- one thing that a lot of people wanted have wanted to do for a long time is do some analytical dating hmm. of these harps. And I eventually got permission to date the Queen Mary harp, radiocarbon date it. Wow. And uh, we did uh, we actually did that project uh, a couple of years ago. I, I haven't published a paper on it yet. I apologize to everybody. Uh, that's one of that's in my to-do list. The reason we were able to do this, and you know, I know there are people out there saying, "Oh, you, you, you know, you carved, you know, you carved up the harp to get a sample to data." I thought you're, you know, I thought you were one of these people that does non-destructive research, and that's true. But uh, radiocarbon dating has progressed a lot in recent decades in terms of the amount of sample that you need mm. to do a date uh, the sample size it keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller so we were able to take micro samples wow. that were like i think uh, i'll have to look at my notes but they they were like uh, i think a, a one or two millimeters on mm. the side really really teeny tiny samples um and they were taken from Parts of the harp that are you're not going to be able to see. Uh, uh, we we took a sample from inside the sound box and a sample from the uh, neck tenon that sticks inside the sound box. You mm. can't see, um, and a sample of the four pillar where there's already a, an old uh, cutout damaged area. Um, so minimally invasive, and yes, radiocarbon dating is a destructive process because you know you you don't get you use up the samples mm. to to uh, do the analysis. But what we found was that, and again, we we dated each part of the heart frame separately, okay, because they're suits, mm. they're all separate pieces. Right, I was going to ask about and, that. Yeah, yeah, they're separate, and they're even made from different woods. Mm. Um, so they were dated separately and it turns out, unfortunately, I don't have my notes in front of me, so I'm doing this from memory, but, um, the, the samples dated from the late 13th century to, I think the mid 14th century, Hmm. um, and again, there's a there you get you don't get a specific they don't a date you don't say oh this from this year <laughs> right there's a, there's a curve <laughs> and there's there's a whole lot that goes into um, 
figuring out, you know, um, calibrating, you know, calibrating the, the number that you get. Um, I won't go into all the details, but um, those are the dates of the samples. Um, and actually, I think some of them were a little bit like late 13th to maybe late 14th century. Now, the the sample itself is that gives you the date of when that tree ring was growing, the mm. year of that tree ring. Um, you know, plus or minus the the uncertainty. So I think it was like late late 13th to mid 14th century for the various samples. And then I, what I had to do was then go in, into the CT scans and count tree rings wow. <laughs> for each of the parts of the harp to try to figure out, um, you know, where in the in the tree that was and how far from the outside of the tree from when that tree was felled mm. that, you know, how many years between that tree ring and when the tree was cut down to mm. make a harp. And I, I had to then, you know, because I don't know how far that is from the outside of the tree, I had to understand about the cuts of the wood and also, especially for the sound box, looking at the growth rate of the tree rings. And I, you know, discussed this with, um, um, some specialists. Um, I, I talked to a horticulturalist about this and, um, we were able to take that, take those results and come up with a probable date for when the harp, each part of the harp was actually fashioned into a harp. Wow. Um, and, um, it, it looks like the harp was probably made sometime between the second quarter of the 14th century and the first quarter of the 15th century. Hmm. And, you know, I'm being very conservative there in that number. I'm actually, that's, you know, I'm allowing all sorts of the broadest possible, um, you know, scope of the data. Uh, So Hmm. it's, highly unlikely that the harp was made either earlier or later than those dates it is i i I think i've got the probability somewhere in my notes but it's it's almost certainly was made between you know around 1420 around 1325 to, to 1425 so it's a 14th century harp and that was something we didn't know before i mean we we knew that it was probably 15th century or 14th century. And in fact, I think in the museum, if you looked at the little card next to the display, I think it said 15th, circa 15th century. So it was a bit, it was about 100 years older than what the museum thought it was. And that's really, not only is it exciting, it's not just a matter of, oh, well now we have a date that we can put on the little card next to the display. But that helps people who, anybody who has a, you know, a replica of the Queen Mary harp and is playing music. Now they know, mm. oh, that was the century that this harp was made. Yeah. And that's and then you can say, okay, let's look at 14th century music. You know, what were what was the style of music back then? I mean, unfortunately Edward Bunting wasn't alive in the 14th century, so there was nothing right. there chopping down the harper's music, unfortunately. But there's other music. Right. The liturgical music or yeah, there's yeah, there's, yeah exactly. Uh, and that we can then connect that with uh, with the harp itself and how many you know what what's its compass and mm. how was it tuned um, and and you know put it into context. We can now put the harp into context. 
you know, historically and musically, mm. and not just musically, but also historically, you know, what was going on right. uh, when that harp was made, and who was it made for, and why, mm. and where. Um, so all that wonderful information, you know, it's, it's all, it's a, it's a huge, important piece of the puzzle, and it helps us, it gives us a signpost in for the development and the history of these instruments, a really important early signpost. Mm. Because that, that harp is uh, fairly sophisticated in its design. And it was, you know, in, in terms of the number of strings and, and its compass, uh, you know, originally 29 strings and then the 30th was, was added sometime in its history. Um, so that says a lot about harp playing mm. and how well developed it was at that time you know, in the 14th century. Um, so yeah, so it gives us a lot of really good information for understanding these instruments and understanding the status of these instruments. And this was not just, it, this wasn't something that somebody just threw together who'd never built a musical instrument before. Mm. Let's just say that. It was, a, this was a mature design just from studying the way this harp was built and the craftsmanship that went into it, not only just making it its structure, but also the decorative work. Um, and anybody who's seen a picture of the Queen Mary harp, the first thing that strikes you is the um, the decorative work on it, the carving and uh, the, the elaborate carving on it. And, and also you can tell that, that you, at some point it was pigmented as well. Um, this was a, really a very, very sophisticated high status thing. And that says, that tells us something about these harps their music, and the people who played them. Right. It wasn't just uh, like everyone had one. It wasn't a folk instrument. It was, yeah, it was, yeah, the it was court. a high-status instrument. And certainly the, the, the historical information that we have tells us that, you know, these were high-status instruments and the harpers had a position of high status and that they played for, you know, noble patrons and they, were, they, they had a particular function, you know, accompanying praise poetry or, you know, um, that sort of thing. Um and this, this certainly is consistent with that. And I think it's, it's very helpful to have this information because, again, if you don't know, there's always going to be somebody who will say, ah, but you don't know, right? <laughs> it could, might not have been that way. You know, you're just making an educated guess. So I, it, it helps to have this you know, definitive information of, so, you know, because again, we didn't we didn't know for certain, and and now we now we have more information, and it's all good. It's all good. it helps yeah. people. I just find it fascinating what you do. It's it's not it's the science side of it and the analysis, but it's also the finding the provenance of these instruments and their stories, and then you know handed down from generation to generation and um to the repertoire that they played and the stories that they they tell and not just when they were first built and played, but the journey that these instruments take through the years and when you get to find them and, and discover them um, is just incredible. Like you're a historical detective, um, you know, just placing the harp sleuths. Well, I'm glad you feel that way. I find it interesting and, and I'm glad other people find it interesting too. Um, yeah, it, it, each of these instruments has a life story of its own, and that just enriches 
what we do when we play the music and it gives us context and it helps us better understand and I really th I think it helps the playing mm -hmm. a lot to know the history and the context um, uh, yeah beyond ju even just the technical information I think it really helps a lot um, I, I hope that I can continue to do more of this kind of research um, I the, the, the biggest stumbling block is, is funding. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it, we were able to get this a little bit of funding to do this pilot project. But, um, um, so I'm hoping to find more funding to do, do more of this kind of research in the future. We will see. I so. hope so. <laughs> I, and, and I know, um, I mean, with o o Carolyn's 350th birthday was last year, but um, the Historical Harp Society of Ireland is celebrating that this year. Um, and then having the Historical Harp Society's um, summer festival link up with Somerset, I think you're going to have more people um, interested in, in what you're doing and, and the research and the early Irish harp. So I'm excited about that. Oh, I, I am too. This is a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. Um, Kathy D'Angelo, who runs the Somerset Folk Harp Festival, does an absolutely amazing job. She is a super, super person, and she, you know, reached out to us last year and said, hey, would, you know, would you like to, you know, link up? And this is a super opportunity to um, bring this instrument and its beautiful music and, and uh, its sound to a wider audience of people. Um, I, I gave my talk on the Hollybrook harp last year at last year's Somerset, mm. and I was just amazed and delighted at the um, number of people who uh, came to my talk. Uh, it was online, obviously, but who you know who virtually came, and the the questions that people had, you know, like wow, this is really interesting. These harps and you know. And what about this? And what about that? And that really, um, I found it really encouraging. Mm. These, it, you know, anybody who plays any kind of harp, there's always new things to explore, different harps, different, different genres of music. And this is another one to explore. And I'm hoping that, you know, I had this wonderful journey when I, when I first heard this music. Uh, and I thought, wow, this is a whole new world. Mm. It was like, you know, it literally was like entering a whole new landscape. Uh, it is an amazing sounding instrument. Uh, it has a, it's, uh, you know, it's nice to be able to play an instrument that no matter what notes you play, <laughs> they sound good. <laughs> uh, it's, it's an amazing sounding instrument. Uh, uh, because of the metal strings, it has this very long sustain mm. that it, and this and the resonance be, you know the, the sound box is is typically very, very um, substantial um, and you get this this beautiful tinkling long uh, resonance uh, sustained sound that's like nothing else mm. it's beautiful to listen to it's really transporting to listen to it mm. and to play it is is also a wonderful experience so i'm hoping that people who haven't had the opportunity to uh explore this instrument will be encouraged to you know anybody can can ha you know 
learn how to play this. You know, like all musical instruments, it takes work. I'm not saying it's, I'm definitely not saying it's easy to learn. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I don't want people to feel like, oh, that's, you know, I, oh, maybe I can't, you know, you can, mm-hmm. you can. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I'm encouraging everyone to give it a try and find out more about it. Um, yeah. I think, I think people will be pleased and, and, you know, it's, a, it's another it's another harp to explore for those people who play other harps. Absolutely. And I, and I think your work, I, I work a lot with uh, middle school and high school students. And I think a lot of your work will um, be so interesting to them. A lot of the students I work with love science and love music and just seeing those worlds combine, I think, um, and the history behind it. I think it'll really, really excite them as well. Um, so, you know, getting them interested in, in, in this too. So is wonderful. Oh, oh, that, oh so. that's great. Well, you know what I think? I th- you know, everybody talks about STEAM, uh, STEM plus mm. the arts, but I think music is the original STEAM mm. field. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, yeah. I, yeah. I wouldn't, you know, I think music is, and science are not so different as people think. I think they're really all different. They, they are both different parts of the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Physics oh, so, and music. I'm so delighted to oh, that, thank you. that people, you know, find this interesting. I find it interesting. It's the 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 whole process of discovery just absolutely delight delights me. Mm. And to be able to help people, to be able to help the musicians who play these instruments and to be able to help the harp makers who build them. Mm. Uh it, it makes it that much better. I can remember when I um, did the CT scanning of the two Scottish harps, and I, I gave, right after that, I gave a talk at for the Historical Harp Society of Ireland at their summer school, and um, someone came up to me afterwards and gave me a hug and oh. said, thank you so much. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, wow. That made me feel so good. <laughs> so amazing so where can people where can people find you and and just find out more about what you do so i have a website karenloomis.com you know i encourage people to go visit my my website i i offer um consulting services for heart makers so if a heart maker is listening or or if you are a heart player and you you have a heart maker that you work with um you can point them to my site uh, because I, you know, that's that's a big part of what I do is I'm I'm here to help people make harps, uh, you know, and under you know modeled after these historical instruments. Or even even if you're a harp maker and you're you're not, you know, you don't want to make a, a historical replica necessarily, but you would you can inform your own designs by learning about the craftsmanship of these historical instruments. Mm. You know, what did people do when they were making their harps back in the day? Mm. Um, I'm also uh, dedicated to, you know, passing knowledge to the next generation and to other people and to my colleagues. So this this autumn, I'm planning to um, do some online workshops um so if people you know check back at the end of the summer uh, uh there'll be information on my web page uh, so people can find out about that then 
Excellent. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing all of this amazing discovery and information here. I'm I'm just I'm so fascinated. It's it's, it's so it's all cool stuff. I yeah. mean, yeah, definitely. It's all really cool stuff. Um and like I said, I, I always, what gets me is when people, you know, say, oh, I, I guess we'll never know. You know, <laughs> and that's what, that's, that's like, okay, Karen, time to get into action. <laughs> <laughs> there's still, like, yeah. There, and there's still so much more to find out. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and like, I've, I've really only done a few of the harps. I mean, I did the Queen Mary and the Lamont and then the Hollybrook mm-hmm. and, you know, there's all these other harps, and there are, I I want to point out though, I'm not the only one. It's not just me. There are other people who do who are also doing amazing work, like Simon Chadwick's project with the the Carolyn Harp at the mm-hmm. National Museum of Ireland. Uh, Michael Billinge is another person who does really good research. Um, um, Paul Dooley has done really good research with the Brian Baruch Harp. Uh, um, Barbara Carlick has done some really good uh work as well so yeah so there's there's people out there um and there's there's always new things to discover it it's yes i mean i could go on and i could go on but i don't that's okay <laughs> oh, thank you so <laughs> but I encourage much people to get in touch definitely you know at, at my email is karen at, at karen uh or you can go just go to my website Right, and and they could sign up for um, the lectures that you're doing um, at Somerset, the well, the historical definitely. harp society. Oh yes, yeah. so too, definitely, so. yeah. If you go to the uh, Somerset uh, Folk Harp Festival website, I'm giving a couple of workshops for them, and also this year, the uh, we're over the Historical Harp Society of Ireland um, Summer Festival of Early Irish Harp is overlapping with Somerset. So the the last day of Somerset Festival is also the first day of the um, Historical Harp Society of Ireland Festival. Mm. And uh, that, so if you get to the end of Somerset and you think, I want more, Mm. there is more. (laughs) So I encourage people to check out um, the Historical Harp Society of Ireland webpage, irishharp.org, and we will... Um, as of this recording, we are close to um, making our uh, dedicated festival website live. I think within the next, maybe by the time this airs, it'll be up uh, because we're, we're you know, days away from it, it being um, live online. People will be able to um, sign up for the Historical Harp Society of Ireland Festival. I'm the assistant director this year with Siobhan Armstrong as the director. She does, she's does. she been doing it for, this is the 17th year, uh, 17th or 18th year. Uh, she does an amazing job. Uh, there's an, a stellar lineup of um, performers and teachers that, that a range of of workshops and and concerts and talks that people can in you know select from and enjoy um so i hope that people will go check that out and, and you know check the website and you know sign up and you will definitely not be sorry mm-hmm. it's like the first time i went you know i back in 2006 i didn't know what to expect i thought well this sounds interesting and i was blown away i was absolutely blown away wow. so 
Well, I'm happy for it because it. It, it helps <laughs> you down this path of this of what yeah. you're doing right now. So <laughs> incredible. So Karen, could you explain what the difference is between like the wire strung harp and the the lever harp, um, and maybe even the pedal harp that people are are familiar with? Yeah. So the the uh, wire strung harp or it, or what some people call the uh, the historical instruments are sometimes called early Irish harps or uh, historical clarsucks or historical clarsucks. Uh, clarsuck is the Irish language word and clarsuck is the, the Scottish language word. Uh, so these instruments were, uh, they're strung with metal strings, usually brass, they have a substantial wooden frame. Often the sound box was made out of a single large piece of wood that's been hollowed out. Um, and this type of harp was played in, primarily in Ireland and Scotland, but, but also to a certain extent in, in England as well. Uh, from the medieval period until the early 19th century. Um, and then it died out. It actually died out a little bit earlier in Scotland be, uh, than in Ireland. In Scotland, it died out in the 18th century. And the last generation of traditional um, harpers playing this instrument um, uh, lasted until you know, th in, into the 19th century. Um, and uh, then it, it, it died out, it stopped being played. Um, the people who played these, this type of harp um, would have played for noble and powerful patrons, particularly during the medieval uh, period and, and until the, the uh, 17th century. Um, they would have been, you know, hired by their patron to play formal music, uh, often accompanying formal poetry for, you know, in honor of the patron. Later on in the 18th century and into the early 19th century, it, they were more itinerant musicians that would go from house to house and play for wealthy patrons. Uh, but eventually, you know, the, 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 as the times changed and people's tastes in music changed and the politics changed, the, 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 the tradition gradually went into decline and died out. Um, and the harps that you often see in here today, the, which is the, the lever harp, sometimes it's also called an Irish harp, um, those are um, strung. They're not strung with metal. They're, they're, they're strung with nylon. One of the the uh, differences between these two instruments, um, other than the strings, is the the, uh, the the early Irish harp has no sharping mechanisms on it. So unlike a pedal harp or a lever harp, you there's there's no mechanism for raising the pitch of strings. And that and the music at the time that these instruments were played for much of their history didn't require accidentals or key changes. It was modal music. 
Um, so the, the instrument was, you know, suited for its time. In the, we believe that in the 17th century, there may have been Irish harps that ha- that were at least partially chromatic. That is, they would have had an additional rank of strings tuned to the semitones. You know, similar to like you know the you know Italian arpadopia uh, or you know other other multi-rank harps. Um, there's there's one f- fragment of a surviving instrument that has uh, beneath the main row of tuning pins a little partial row of a shorter row of tuning pins, and that may have been for these you know semitone strings, the, the chromatic tuning. Um, the, the, the instruments are constructed differently, uh, um, and you know the string is different. They're also, the string spacing is different because, um, for for example, on a lever harp, you're plucking the strings, whereas on one of these um, early Irish harps, you're actually striking the strings either with your fingernails uh, or your fingertips. So the strings are closer together, and um, you need to... Because of the metal strings, the instrument has a very long sustain. It's a very beautiful sustain. Um, and you actually build up um, in, and interweave textures and harmonies by s- selectively damping certain strings and allowing other strings to continue to ring. Hmm. And so you get this wonderful shifting harmony effect as you play the instrument that you're in complete control of um, as you, you know, stop the strings with your fingertips. Um, and the, the, that's built into the technique and the way the instrument is played and, and the string spacing is part of that. The early Irish harp was, for much of its history, played with the fingernails. So the fingers, the fingernails would strike the strings and it, it produces a sound a, a slightly like the sound of a harpsichord, a little bit uh, reminiscent of that. Now, later on in the tra- tradition, starting from sometime maybe the, the late 17th century and into the 18th century, players uh, shifted to playing with their fingertips without fingernails. Mm-hmm. They were still striking the strings, not pulling them. Because if you were to try to pluck a string, like you would say, like a nylon string, you would break the metal strings. You mm. don't play it that way. Uh, but they, they played with their, later in the tradition, in the 18th century, most players, not all of them, but most of them were playing actually without fingernails, with their fingertips. And that's, I think it's good to point that out because I know there, you might have some listeners who think that they can't, try to play this instrument because they can't grow their nails and you don't need to have fingernails to play this instrument especially if you're interested in playing the 18th century repertory of the edward bunting collected interesting no that's amazing and then the the neo-irish harp is sort of like a is that more of like a hybrid of the the pedal harp um yeah so it's real. there's a uh, there's a really interesting history here um so just as the metal strung harps were dying out john egan a harp builder uh, 
early 19th century heart builder, he was um, commissioned to build some metal strung harps for one of the um, harp schools uh, um, for teaching new students because there there was an attempt to try to continue the tradition because the tradition, people knew that it was dying out. And actually at that time, by the early 19th century, there wasn't anybody building traditional metal strung early Irish harps. And actually Nancy Hurrell, she's an expert on the history of Egan and his harp. So if I say anything that's not quite correct, I apologize, Nancy. Um, um, but people would be interested to hear what Nancy has to say about um, Egan and his harps. So he was brought in to, to build you know, metal-strung harps for these students. And, um, but, at the same, but he also went on to build a, uh, a gut-strung harp that had the overall shape reminiscent of the of the early Irish harp, the, the iconic um, low-headed early Irish harp, the, the early earliest surviving instruments like the Brian Brew. So it, it, it kind of it, it was inspired by that that shape of the frame, uh, but it um, incorporated the mechanics and the play the the, the way of playing of the um, the gut-strung harps, mm-hmm. like the like the pedal harp, uh, so that someone who knew how to play a pedal harp they could very probably p- just pick this up and they would be able to play it. And it was it was compact. It was port- It was made so that it was small, so that it could be a parlor instrument. Just somebody who, you know, wanted to have a, a musical instrument but was not necessarily a professional musician. Uh, but wanted to be able to make music in their home, they, they you know could buy one of these and, and have it in their house. And it's nice that now we've almost come full circle in a way. Mm. We've gotten to the point now where we're able to, thanks to the work of so many dedicated people like Anne Heyman's you know groundbreaking work, um, reconstructing the the old techniques for the metal strung mm. Irish harp. We've come full circle to the point where we can now um, build new harps modeled after those very old original instruments, and you and reconstruct the the techniques and and relearn mm-hmm. how to play those instruments and re-explore anew that old sound world mm. from you know medieval to early modern Ireland. Yeah, and I think that's a wonderful experience. That's beautiful. <laughs> that's so beautiful. It's like discovering a whole new language. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So thank you so, so much. Um, thank, thank you so much. Uh, thanks for listening to Moon Over the Trees Music and Theater Productions podcast. Dive into the show notes at moonoverthetrees.com. And if you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and subscribe to the podcast. 